seeing is believing and I have no proof of what I saw that day other than what I can describe. It was huge. It was like the weightlifter of cats. You say, well, I've seen this big cat. Some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. For our first guest, I'm delighted to introduce Lord Tyler, Paul Tyler, and he is an active politician who represents the Liberal Democrats in the House of Lords, and he is their spokesman for political and constitutional reform. Paul's link to this topic is that he was MP for North Cornwall from 1992 to 2005, and within that period, in 1995, he called for the Ministry of Agriculture, as it was called at that time, to investigate potential big cat evidence in the Bodmin area, part of his constituency. That work became an official study and the Ministry of Agriculture reported a conclusion. We'll discuss that with Paul as we go through the interview. In the second half of the show, we'll be speaking with a farmer who was at the heart of events on Exmoor in the 1980s when the Royal Marines were deployed to help track down the suspected beast of Exmoor. So first we're looking at Bodmin Moor in the 1990s. So Lord Tyler, Paul Tyler, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Pleasure. Thank you very much for joining the show and talking about what to us is a very important event and for you it's one of many things through your career. But when people first started contacting you about Big Cat issues and you were their local MP, did you think this was real or did you think, hmm, not sure? Or what kind of sort of shock or not was it for you at the time? I was absolutely convinced that they were indeed encountering something very unusual It was hard-headed Cornish farmers who started me in this particular investigation in the spring of 1994 because of deaths of lambs. In the lambing season in an area like Bodmin Moor, and I must emphasize that it was never seen in Bodmin itself, any animal of this sort would have been found on the wilds of Bodmin Moor and the immediate parishes around. But the farmers who came to me and said something's got to be done about this were certainly not the sort of people who thought there might be fairies at the bottom of the garden. They were very sturdy and sensible and matter-of-fact people with a great deal of experience of the countryside. And their evidence was supported by a number of other people whose opinions I certainly would respect. Local solicitor who had seen an animal when he was exercising his dog outside Bodmin, out on the moor, a close friend of ours, a farmer's daughter who had seen it when she was walking in an area quite close to our own home on the edge of Bodmin Moor. By the summer of 1994, I was convinced that there was a potential problem, not just with livestock, but possibly with children. And therefore, I started to make inquiries as to whether anybody was already in a position to give me authentic official advice as to what should be done if there was a problem and whether anybody was prepared already to deal with that problem should it occur in terms of a major incident of any sort. And I came in contact with a very interesting man in the area, a local police constable, Peter Keane, who then told me that he, as in his own spare time, as it were, as a hobby, had been taking photographs of animals that clearly had not been killed by dogs, let alone by domestic cats, and had been in touch with a number of farmers in my area. So with his help and with the support of the NFU, I convened a conference in Bodmin in, I think it was August 1994, where a number of people put before me their evidence of what they were convinced were wild cats, exotic animals, at liberty in the Bodmin Moor area. When you were doing this, Paul, at any stage, were you concerned that as an MP in the public spotlight, dealing with an unconventional subject like this, you might get 
scoffed at by some of your opponents who easily look for things to nitpick on and do you down? Did you feel that you might get criticised as a gullible politician and it would actually do you no good? Or did you feel, no, I'm, this is so credible that these people have got so much conviction, I'm just going to stay with it and I'm sure we're onto something and I don't mind if some people are sceptical and scoffing about it? Well, I think there's one thing being sceptical. Another is being convinced, carefully convinced, of the strength of the case that's being put before you. The number of farmers who are certainly, as I've described, not given to flights of fancy, who had come to me, together with Peter Keane, the police constable, together with the local officials of the National Farmers Union, these were not the sort of people that I felt I had to challenge to the point of not believing what they were telling me. It was a very convincing case they were putting in front of me. So I think it's probably fair to say that at the outset, I was questioning, but I was never sceptical of the, the validity of the case they were putting before me. Yes. Did you ever get concerned, though, that by taking it up and representing them as you felt you should do as their MP, you would get criticised by others who would see it as so preposterous or think it was so preposterous it couldn't be true and that you were gullible? Did you feel that it could impact on your reputation? I mean, a lot of people don't look into the subject, even though they feel it might be credible, because they're worried about reputational impact. I don't recall ever feeling that at all, because Frankly, by the time I became involved and had taken the trouble to listen to all this evidence, when I went public with the calling together of this group of people in Bodmin in August 1994, by that time, really, I was persuaded that there was a very serious case. There was a very serious potential incident here, which I would never forgive myself if something went badly wrong and there was an attack for example, on a small child. Taking it up within parliamentary and civil service circles, did you find that was tougher and you got institutional kickback or, uh, and it was too much of a culture shock and they regarded it as too awkward? What, what kind of a challenge was that, taking it within parliament, within the civil service? Oh, that certainly was a challenge. Not it has, I have to say, from members of parliament. I think they were just intrigued. Some of them had had similar reports in different parts of the country. You've referred already this evening to Exmoor. So it wasn't as if this was a complete novelty. But what was, I thought, really sad and a really unfortunate reflection on the Ministry of Agriculture, which was then the responsible government department, was that no sooner were they empowered to set up a proper investigation they did it on a shoestring, just a matter of a very few thousand pounds, with just two really experts involved. It was really a desk study of what evidence was already available. There was no attempt, for example, to meet those farmers and other local residents who had direct experience of sightings. There was no attempt to examine, as it were, in the field, any victims of a kill. There was never any interviewing of anybody who could give a lot of detail. For example, one of those who had seen what was presumably a female with youngsters, with cubs near Bodmin, that to establish that they were breeding would, of course, have been an extraordinarily important development in the whole investigation. Nobody ever bothered to talk to that particular individual. So when eventually ADAS and MAF produced their report in the spring of 1995. I can't remember the exact date, but I think it must have been in about April. Then I was really disappointed that actually they had got to the point of saying, well, we can't prove there isn't. It was a double negative, if you like. They kept it ambiguous. They kept it ambiguous. The minister at the time, who was perfectly straightforward that she was not persuaded that this was a serious problem, Angela Browning, who came from a Devon constituency, I mean, I think she was perfectly straightforward about it. She was not persuaded because her officials actually left her with this huge question mark still hanging there in the air. 
in normal circumstances, I would have expected the minister and a ministry to have said, this is unproven. We should seek what further evidence we can establish to get it to a point where we can make it a certainty in either direction. But they didn't go any further. I just think there is in Whitehall, and I've lived with many other investigations and many other campaigns, uh, both before and since then, which have come into contact with the Whitehall mindset. The Whitehall mindset is really until you got us absolutely to the point where there's no escape, we don't really believe that this is a problem. I mean, we are seeing it every day now, aren't we? Pass on, pass on, there's nothing to see here. It seems to be the general attitude in Whitehall. While I was perfectly prepared to do everything I could to support their inquiry and was optimistic about it, as it took a few weeks to come to fulfillment, the fact that they never bothered really to talk to me in any detail suggested that they weren't talking to anybody in any great detail and that it was effectively a paper shuffling study rather than a practical one. Yes. I mean, I'm just checking my notes here. It was 26 person days and a budget of £8,000. Now, £8,000 went further in those days. I remember in my book, I said this was not an inquiry. It was a peep round the corner and then a quick retreat. Do you feel that farmers and the landowners and people who were the audience for this and the participants back down in Bodmin, do you think there was an outcome that they wanted and were expecting? Well, I think the very limited expectation and a very reasonable one was that those who had brought forward information were prepared to give evidence that they should be interviewed by this particular inquiry team. But they never were. And so by the time of the result, I have to admit, not only was I extremely disappointed at the lack of depth and width, if you like, of the study that had been undertaken, but I was very sympathetic to those whose expectations had been raised and who'd been dashed by the lack of any practical contributions from the people who knew what they were talking about in the area. Were they not even asked to submit photographs? I thought that people were asked to submit photographs of carcasses. They were. You're absolutely right. But frankly, if you are a busy sheep farmer, and most of the the victims, of course, were lambs, you don't stop to take lots of careful photographs and measurements, let alone, as you have mentioned before, had the professional and technical expertise to look at bones and decide what sort of size of cat or other animal might have attacked a lamb, you don't have that sort of information. And those days, people didn't have mobile phone cameras to hand. Exactly. That's exactly the point I was going to make. Nor do at that stage, in expectation that the study itself was going to do that sort of work, You don't really expect to keep records of everything in a a scientifically professional way if you are a busy farmer. (laughs) That isn't how life works. I think by the end of the period of the study, and I call it a study rather than an investigation because I I see it much more as being a sort of desk-bound looking at what material was available to them, Mm rather than going and look for new material. By the end of it, I think a lot of people were disillusioned with the process. And I would emphasize that after the publication of that report, very few farmers were prepared to come forward and give new evidence to anybody, even to me, because they felt they'd been so badly let down by the very limited nature of the inquiry the study, uh, that they thought that they'd been taken for being naive country yokels. And nobody likes to be treated like that. So the cynicism that you referred to earlier followed the report rather than preceded it. Did you pick up, Paul, that people at the outset felt if there had been an emphatic case judged to be correct, that they were after 
compensation for stock kills and maybe even an attempt to intercept the main culprits, one or more culprits. Did they think that MAF and ADAS, ADAS was the advisory service then, wasn't it, to, to the ministry? Yes. Did they think that there would be funded activity to compensate and recover the culprit, that sort of thing? Or is that difficult to judge, do you think? What they wanted, and this is where they were very firmly backed up by Police Constable Peter Keane, was there should be at least some awareness of where attacks had taken place, some warning to the general public that this was a potential problem, particularly a mother animal defending her cubs. Uh, You would know more about this than I would, but I would have thought that would always be a potential problem. They might be a great deal more likely to attack a human being, particularly a child. That that was much more of a concern. If it had become a wider problem, if there had been a whole group or a number of single individuals but operating over a bigger area, if there had seemed to be several breeding pairs, then I think that the farming community and the NFU, they're a very hard-headed lot, they were all much more concerned about this getting out of control and nobody being prepared to take responsibility for any warnings and potential care about the numbers that seem to be increasing. It was much more about taking a responsible, careful attitude to what might happen rather than any individuals looking for compensation or any specific support of that sort. That's broadly as I find the situation now when I meet farmers, horse riders, visitors to the countryside, local people who encounter one of these animals. And if they're prepared to come forward and put their head on the block and talk about it, and of course not everybody is, it is largely, if you pin it down, they believe that some gentle, cautious awareness raising is the best first approach. And if, if anything develops further into the future, then you think again about other things you might do. But so many people, I think, still feel now, uh, many years on, that awareness raising is helpful, especially if people who've had very close encounters are very much a difference between seeing one from a distance and having a close confrontation or a close-up view of one eyeing up your dog or one sort of singling out a a lamb or a sheep to potentially predate. So that's very interesting indeed. Of course, the mother and cubs issue, I hear direct and indirectly of people who have a mother and young on their land. Some people are very emotionally touched by that, so they keep it quiet. And other people feel, well, this is so potentially inflammatory. If I admit to this, you know, there'll be some rebound on my land and property and name and business status. The more severe and intense the experience or sighting is, the more people, I think, are inclined to keep their head down because of fear of consequences. So it is a difficult sort of psychological, tactical issue, I think, for a lot of people. So intriguing to know that at that time there was no key agenda beyond initial awareness raising and wider understanding. The motivation of all the people that I met and worked with on this issue was public safety, it was public spirit, it was not any sense of private gain or even just private protection. It was very much to try and make sure that the appropriate authorities were well aware of potential problems as well as recognition that there was an existing problem. The scale of that problem might not have been very great at that stage. But there was obviously an awareness it could have easily grown. Were you concerned at all, Paul, that sometimes when government plans to do something, there are unintended consequences? I'm not excusing Whitehall at all, but I think sometimes it's actually quite useful if Whitehall does nothing because you don't start spending money when it's undeserved and and waste money or you don't come across an unintended consequence which can be worse than the issue you're addressing in the first place. Did you ever fear that this could lead to a, a Pandora's box and a disproportionate reaction or did you just want it investigated in a step at a time consideration of the issues as they emerged? Well, I never imagined that there was going to have to be some sort of massive eradication program because the scale of it wasn't like that. And I was impressed with the extent to which the farming community, individual farmers as well as the NFU, were not looking for that. 
they were looking for a proper, responsible awareness of a potential problem, and in so doing, that they wanted to be taken seriously. Their credibility was an important issue to them, and they didn't take kindly, as is the case with all good Cornish people, I think, <laughs> uh, they didn't take kindly to the suggestion that this was all a flight of fancy. Yeah. But at no stage did I encounter anybody really thinking that this was something that required an elaborate government operation. They simply wanted to be sure that people were aware of the extent of the current problem and of its potential increase. That's very helpful to know, that context. Were people, from your knowledge, Paul, reporting Black Panther, assumed to be Black Leopard in the main, and then there's the mountain lion, also called Puma and Cougar. Was it those two types of cats that you felt people were reporting largely? Yes, both were definitely reported, and they were distinct, of course. Both farmers and other residents were always, I think, able to give a clear distinction between the two possibilities. I mean, some, of course, the sightings were in dust conditions, particularly in the early months of 1994, during the spring months, when the lambing was the the major problem. But even so, I think it would be fair to say there was a clear description in each case of one or other of those colourings. Yes. And of course, if you only woke up to an impacted carcass, an eviscerated carcass, you wouldn't have seen the culprit anyway. No, no, exactly, exactly. Were people reporting the sounds, the calls, the vocalisations, do you know? Frankly, I don't recall that. Now, it may be that's just because it's quite a long time ago. I don't recall that being a major issue. What about links? Were there any links-type cat reports? No, as far as I recall, again, I, I mean, I have some records here, but I've read this quite a long time ago. I don't recall that, no. No, okay. And what I find intriguing now is that... A lot of people from hunting, shooting, fishing, farming situations where you might feel they might be intolerant and hostile are actually, I think, have come to terms and and respectful of these animals in many cases, most cases, I find. And I think that's largely because these animals that are around still that obviously many years on, so that perhaps proving there's been some low-level naturalising population increase happening, but perhaps at a very small level. They seem to be largely behaving themselves, with one or two exceptions. And of course, the exceptions can seem dramatic. It's almost like a lot of people have come to terms with this. Does it surprise you in any way that it's an ongoing issue, even if it isn't perhaps as intense in terms of the sheep killing that went on at key stages in the 80s and 90s? It's interesting that during the whole of the period when I was quite regularly involved in discussions about this, I don't recall any farmer or landowner threatening, as it were, to take the law into his own hands because he felt that he or she was not being treated seriously by officialdom, which would be a natural reaction, wouldn't it, if people were really so concerned about these animals coexisting with their own livestock. So I think there was a sort of interesting respect for the wild animal which is not always the case with those who are trying to look after domesticated animals. I think that's a very interesting. I mean, there's something that you probably will have to look at more carefully because I can't give you a clear answer. But I think that the attitude of people to these animals and their continuing existence in our own environment is a, a fascinatingly complex one. People, I think, are really not quite sure what they think rather than they have adopted a sort of very antagonistic or very supportive attitude. I think it's sort of interestingly complex relationship there, which those who are livestock farmers perhaps have a greater extent than the general public. Yes, because they're exposed on the front line. Absolutely. Yes, I I think that's absolutely right, Paul. I think so many people express mixed emotions and almost say, well, it depends, you know, it depends if these animals carry on largely behaving themselves or not. You know, the jury's out and it's up to the animals to prove to us that they can coexist. But of course, so many people also remain sceptical because they never come across the animals. They don't understand how incredibly stealthy and furtive these kinds of cats are as predators. 
Yeah, there's a whole range of emotions and opinions. Nobody's right or wrong here. We're all just learning about it and muddling through together. I think that's absolutely right. And looking again at some of the press cuttings at the time, it comes through very strongly that people were more intrigued and admiring by the possibility of these elusive animals being there quite close to them than they were either frightened or concerned to the point of wanting there to be some sort of eradication program. And I think that's encouraging. You would know whether that continues to be the generally the case or whether either the increase in some areas or the apparent breeding of pairs in, in some areas mm. has caused people to be more anxious, concerned, and therefore less supportive and appreciative of these amazing animals. Yeah. I think the listeners to this podcast know that majority of witnesses sort of say, leave them alone until there's a case to do otherwise. They do deserve respect, of whatever background they're from. I think also that we're always talking with a bias sample, aren't we? Perhaps people who were trying to use firearms to take a bullet to the issue would do that secretly anyway. And I do believe that happens occasionally. And those people are just going to sort of keep quiet about it and dig a hole and shut up and that's it. But what I would say is that, and we've had this said on the podcast, that people who might think that a bullet is a solution to one that's misbehaving or one that they just won't tolerate regardless, I think a lot of people know how difficult and practically awkward it is to actually shoot one. Yes, quite. Don't let it get to you so much. In some ways, it's where perhaps government isn't well suited to address a problem that's so complex and multidisciplinary and hasn't got formulaic approaches. Government is good when there's a set piece approach to something and you just dollop a, a range of money and, and a range of people to do something about something. But I think this is more subtle and complex and so does need other approaches, perhaps. I think that's absolutely right. I, I think you've summed it up brilliantly. Um, I just wanted to finish, if I may, going back to what I said at the very outset of the math inquiry. I hope this will reassure farmers that their fears are no longer being discounted. The last thing we want is a self-appointed posse of amateur big game hunters taking the law into their own hands. That was my fear at the time, that if the ministry didn't take it seriously and didn't respond with a proper and thorough investigation, then I thought there was a danger that there would be some amateur attempt to do something which would be potentially extremely dangerous to animals and to human beings. Well, fortunately, that didn't happen. But I still think that the attitude of officialdom was too limited, was too narrow, and as a result of that, I'm afraid a lot of people since then, probably in other parts of the country too, but certainly in Cornwall, have just quietly uh, said, well, we're not going to bother any longer with telling people about what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've experienced, because they won't take us seriously. Now that, in any walk of life, I'm afraid is not a healthy situation. I agree. Reflecting on how I find things now, I do think those scars and memories of those scars do still live on. I think there's a slight tendency to be cynical of government intentions and government mindsets and attitudes anyway these days for something as complex as this. But I, I think you're right, Paul. I think that, that the memories do filter on from that approach. There was no trust gained and trust is hard won on these sorts of things. So, But uh, you know, maybe we're learning different approaches and I think a lot of people are private on this sort of thing and they don't want investigations which could be inflammatory or difficult. But I think what's also interesting about this potential problem of vigilantes and posses and humans being the real beast in the woods rather than the cats, I think a lot of people worry about that. And that's one reason why people keep quiet about it, because they think if they do reveal what they're seeing, it could mean that they'll get people coming along with wrong intentions. So easier to keep quiet. So yeah. Well, Paul, I'm very grateful to you spending time for us setting out the context as you saw it and dealt with it as it evolved at the time. And in a busy politician's career, you've probably dealt with many awkward subjects. And uh, I guess this is amongst them as, as one with no easy answers. But uh, very grateful for your time and interest, Paul. So many thanks indeed. 
Well, thank you, Rick, very much, and very best of luck with the further activity in this field. I hope it all goes well. Thank you very much, Paul. All the best. Our word of the week is catnip. And of course, it's a plant that attracts cats specifically. It's like an aphrodisiac to them, so they get a high from it. It also seems to be a scent-marking target for them, and I know this because I have a trail camera in my garden and I can see that through the night sometimes up to three local cats all scent the catnip and smell it. So they seem to be detecting each other as they pass by and check it out. We're mentioning catnip because we ought to pay homage to the late Nigel Briley. He was an Exmoor neighbour of our next guest coming up in a minute, Eric Lay. Once big cat sightings really developed in the 1980s in the Exmoor area, Nigel Briley got active in tracking and helping local farmers, and he wrote the excellent short book They Stalk by Night. The book has a helpful little section on lures for big cats. These days, with our use of trail cameras, lures are even more important in the subject, perhaps. We'll probably talk about lures and hear different examples of them in some of our future episodes. For example, I sometimes leave out Calvin Klein Obsession type of perfume in a sunken pot in the ground in front of a camera, so it wafts out as an attractant. On the web, you can see zoo experiments of Calvin Klein Obsession just to illustrate how it arouses the attention of large cats. But perfume is not as cat-specific as catnip is, so Nigel Briley was making an important point in recommending catnip, and he even grew large quantities of it in his garden and distilled it to get his own supply of catnip oil. Nigel was one of the early pioneers of our subject, and he died well into his 90s a few years ago. If you can find an old copy of They Stalk by Night, it's still a worthwhile read today. And another name coming up in the second half of this show is the late Johnny Kingdom. By profession, Johnny was a grave digger, but he also loved filming wildlife. And with that skill, he presented several TV series highlighting the nature and the red deer and the people of Exmoor. And it was his passion which shone through and made those programmes so popular. On our website for this episode, we put a clip from an early part of one of his series on BBC showing Johnny checking his trail camera photos for big cats. He was advised on that programme by the experienced big cat researchers Chris Johnson and Steve Archibald, both of whom will be coming up on future episodes of this podcast. At that time, the trail cameras were not digital, so they only took photos in batches of 36 on a roll of film. And in the programme, you see those guys emerging from a high street shop to check their photos once they'd been developed. So that clip from just over 10 years back, indicates just how much the technology has advanced today when we consider how the trail cameras can these days provide different types of photo bursts, different length videos and even time-lapse pictures. It's great to pay tribute to both Nigel Briley and to Johnny Kingdom and all they did for promoting interest in nature, big cats and the Exmoor Beast. For our next guest, we are at Drewstone Farm on the southern edges of Exmoor National Park, and we're going to talk about some events which happened in the early months of 1983 when we had a big episode of sheep carcasses found on Exmoor. Eventually, the Marines were called out, and the epicentre of all of those events was Drewstone Farm and the vicinity. And the farmer at the time was Eric Lay. I'm with Eric, who's still based at Drewstone Farm. Eric, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show i didn't have no choice <laughs> we did press gang him so we're very grateful that eric's um coming to revisit these uh, perhaps painful memories eric before this was happening to you before you were finding sheep carcasses on your land you were aware of reports of black panther type animals in the vicinity some of your neighbors were seeing strange animals weren't they possibly on odd occasions but the only experience I had of such things was a butcher who had a, a puma and a jaguar. Fawn, one was, and black the other. And I used to see him go up the road with these sod up in the back of the vehicle, and it turned out to be, would go on the first piece of moorland. That would be either at Twitchin 
it's called Kazikum, are up on Northmont Hill and just exercise these animals. How did he exercise them? On a long leash? No, I think he let them go. But I never witnessed it myself. Okay. But uh, So he, he had them on collars and they would come back to him, hopefully? He'd always take them home with him. <laughs> yeah, sure. Homing cats, yeah. Do you think he had them partly for pets and partly for guarding animals? Probably. Yeah. Probably. Now, that has been reported. I didn't know... I, I think people knew that he had them on his premises. I wasn't aware that he actually exercised them, yep. like taking dogs for a run <laughs> on, the, on the local moor. How amazing. So you heard that on good authority from friends and neighbours, did you, that he, that's how he exercised them? Well, I saw him more than once. Okay. You know, went up the road with him. Yeah. Right. Then knowing somebody who lived there at Twitchin at the time, they would see him right opposite on Kazigum Moorland. OK. Now, the black one, are you sure it was a jaguar or could it have been a black leopard? It was a black panther anyway. From my reading of the literature and hearing reports, uh, including at the North Devon show last year, there were credible sounding reports of black panthers in and around Exmoor from the 1960s, so well before these events in 1983. So can you tell us how it felt and what you saw the first time you came across a carcass on your land and felt this is different from anything I've seen before? The first instance would have been relatively young lambs had vanished. The first foo, I can't remember how many, you know, small lambs, they, they were just gone. Now, if that had happened previously, by putting out a the carcass of a dead lamb and put a bit of strychnine in its neck, the predator would be back next night and couldn't believe his luck. He'd got one all ready for him, and, uh, of course, he didn't taste too well. The regularity, I mean, you had what I've read, and you can confirm this or clarify it. You mustn't believe all you read. <laughs> I don't know. So uh, around about 100 oh. in, in uh, two or three months, is that right, 100 carcasses? It went on for 10 weeks, I know that. Yeah. I can't be precise in the number. But how regularly would you find? Oh, six nights a week, pretty much. Six mornings a week, whichever way. Which is unusual for a big cat. Normally, other farmers who found this, it's normally weekly or every week and a half. Of course, who knows what they're eating in between. They might be eating rabbits or whatever. But So this is almost daily. Well, that would be the average from what I can remember. Yeah, and some of your neighbours were experiencing this as well? Not immediately adjacent neighbours. Say, three mile away, that's running probably from here eastwards. Were they different size ewes and lambs, or was it same types of, same size uh, animal taken? Initially, it was only lambs. I'll come to the ewe bit towards the end. Initially, it was only lambs, of course... They grow quite quickly, obviously. Yeah, and it wasn't long before what you would find would be a carcass left with the rib bones clean right out. You would occasionally find, if there was enough flesh left at the back of the neck, teeth marks are just behind the ears, but normally there would be nothing left. How many pounds of flesh eaten, do you think? Well, like I said, they varied as they got bigger. Do you think... From the amount of consumption and the amount of predation, there was more than one predator at large. No way of knowing. I never saw nothing. Once this started going on for initially a few days, I used to know one of the local North Mountain keepers quite well. And he was interested in this and he put in a lot, a lot of time using these keepering skills, which is primarily to keep predators under control. But whatever he tried, nothing worked. I'm not going to go into details what he tried. <laughs> I mean, that shows you the stealth and alertness of the predator, the culprit itself, doesn't it? People were still thinking it was a dog, weren't they? Many people thought these were dogs. Oh, or... you can't stop people thinking what they like, can you? Yeah. <laughs> you got no control over what people think. Did you have a view initially? I'd only ever seen dog worrying once before. And in that case, everything was so messy. You know, sheep in the field were spooked to death. But this was, you'd never hear nothing. Everything was so quiet. It was just operation by stealth, basically. Completely different to how a dog operates. And the carcass clean and clinical and tidy. The bones would be lit clean. 
I presume you had farm dogs. Did they ever get alarmed at night? I don't recall it. In terms of people helping you and giving their expertise and wanting to try and do detective work, Nigel Briley was a neighbour, wasn't he? He looked at poor Prince and he even had a cage ready, didn't he? Yeah, we had two or three cages down, different places, with bait in, but that was a fortuitous exercise. Because something we never found out for probably six weeks, maybe more, come to pass that any field was sheep in. If anyone walked around the boundary of that field just before dark, those sheep were perfectly safe. We tried different things. This first one was totally ineffective. Someone offered to drive round all night with the Land Rover, just keep going, you know, all night, which in itself proved effective. But the irony was that if you finish, say, 7 o'clock in the morning, something like that, by the time everyone got round and, you know, they were all seen, you know, 9, 10 o'clock, something like that, yeah, one of the last fields he'd driven through, there was a carcass under one hedge. So it was almost as if whatever was doing this was up a tree or wherever watching, um, thinking to yourself, the silly bee will get tired of this eventually, and that's my chance. So that that was one of the first things we tried. I can remember one or two more if it's of interest. Yeah, thing is, we're still thinking about it now. This is the irony. One of the next things we tried, a lot of people was getting interested in this, no more so than Johnny Kingdom. Okay, yeah, the late Johnny Kingdom. Unfortunately, died a couple of years ago, didn't he, with a tragic accident on his farm. It's yeah. an accident that killed him, yeah. He was up for staying up all night with a mate. I think they might have been alone the first night, but thereafter, we had up to 10 or a dozen pairs staying up all night in what we thought was strategic spots. You know, because it was still March, it was a case of having some bales of straw or something like that to break the wind or sitting still all night. It's not very warm. We tried to make it as natural as possible. Yeah, and that, to a degree, was effective because, as a general rule, fields they were in was fine. Except for one particular instance sticks in my mind, and it was a fact that particular night the wind was blowing in a northerly direction, and they were underneath the southern hedge bank, so the wind would have been blowing towards the south. And when they come to leave, right in the northern corner of the field, lo and behold, they found a carcass. And it had happened when they were there in the same field and they never knew nothing. Sheep never moved at all. What was a pattern, which was recognised quite quickly, was all these carcasses were found, say, within a maximum of 10 feet from a hedge that could be only 2 or 3 feet, could be 10 or 12 feet, but that would have been about the maximum. But it soon became apparent something was jumping off the top of the hedge it appeared pouncing from the top of the hedge. I suppose your hedges are hedge banks, so they can do that more, can't they? Well, at least five foot high, uh, maybe six foot, yeah, six foot easily. I find with other cases that I deal with now, it's mainly sheep, ewes and lambs that are unsprayed, undipped, or sprayed or dipped a long while back, so the chemical smell has worn off. Was that the case in your situation? Any dip would have been, what? at least nine months before, so the effect of it would no longer have been around. So there was no chemical smell on these? No, no. Well, I'll give you an instance in a minute where there was, but that was a bit further down the road. I can remember Johnny Kingdom suggesting, and I'm sure it was he who got hold of it, he went to a zoo and he got some fluid in a bottle. Now, I can't remember what it was, whether it was urine or what, I, I don't know sprinkled from this bottle on, say, 20, 40, 50 handfuls of wool and dropped it around the area, different places. And that night, this was happened when people were still staying up at night, the impact of this was something was giving out a tremendous high-pitched scream and travelling at speed 
from A to B. But that night, we had no carcasses. But whatever it was, was disturbed. Now, whether it was the smell what come out of this bottle, it must have been a coincidence, totally, if it wasn't. But that definitely got a reaction. Interesting. Maybe it was a territorial thing to, to suggest that another, another animal had marked that territory and it ascended that territory. Could be. You mentioned the calls there, Eric. Did you, I know you never saw one, but did you ever hear one? No. Funnily enough, the first recollection I had of anything, and this was before we started losing animals, it was a retired doctor and his wife at the time used to live here. They were woken in the woods below here by a very high-pitched scream again. And they'd lived here for probably 25 years at that time, and they'd never heard anything like it before or afterwards, I don't think. That was the first thing, uh, anything unusual, but it didn't think nothing of it at the time. The calls that people were reporting that I've read about were more the sandy brown one, the puma-like. Yet what were the main colour cats that people were reporting around here? Black, I think. There was numerous, numerous people that have lived around here for years. In particular, there was a ex army major who lived here very, very locally. It would be impossible to come across a more trustworthy person. Used to do a lot of walking to keep fit. Was walking through uh, Oak Woodland, the back of where he lived, which is just over the hill in the southerly direction from where we're to now. And he was going around a bend so he could only look a maximum, say, 30, 40 metres ahead. And, um, The sun was shining in through the oak trees on a particular spot and out of the blue, up on its haunches, saw this big black cat. All he could really distinguish from the cat was the ears pricked up. Other than the size of it was 30 times that of your normal domestic muggy. But he only had a sight of one or two seconds and it it was gone. You've just jogged my memory because that guy is reported in Nigel's book, They Stalk by Night, and he... Major King Frets. And Nigel said he bumped into him in South Moulton, and he told this to Nigel, that he'd seen it and heard it. Nigel said, what noise did it make? And he, he made a great imitation of it in the high street, and everybody turned around watching and thought, what's that chap doing? One thing I do remember, he said, with sunshine on it, it shone like a dollar. His coat shone like a dollar. If I thought hard enough about it, there was probably 10 or a dozen people who would have had, always by accident, never ever on purpose, a similar sort of experience. Yeah, but they were mainly black cats, weren't they? Mainly black ones rather than brown ones. From best I can recall, it was always a black one. Yet the interesting thing that Nigel raises in his book is that here we are with black panther sightings, yet the sound, the call of the brown one. So Nigel raises the point in his book is, have we got a situation where we had what is officially the brown puma mountain lion, but in a black form? I can't help you there. (laughs) Nobody has been able to since. I think we have to have an open mind. And Nigel himself heard one at the time, and it was very much a puma, the mountain lion, uh, as you say, high-pitched screaming call. One other sighting I do remember again, this wasn't in the spring at that time, it was August Bank Holiday. This was a couple who've lived locally all their life. He ran a machinery dealing firm. They were with a pair of friends having a picnic, and this was on Exmoor. They were downstream from Willingford Bridge, a pretty little spot got away from people. They'd had a picnic and were laid back sunbathing basically and because it was quite a steep valley they looked across the other side and they watched again a big black cat come out. Now initially one of them caught sight of it what appeared to be stalking a rabbit in ferns on its haunches. They watched it to the point it pounced and caught a rabbit and after that it came out of the semi-undergrowth and walked down over the steep right opposite. They never moved, and they watched it have a drink in the stream down below. And then it went back to where it came from. Again, they said the wind was blowing in their faces, and they were himself in semi-undergrowth, and they did not move. 
These days, if they'd had a mobile phone camera, they might have done it because it's very difficult. But if you've got that time and you're not being seen, they weren't scared. They were far enough away not to be scared. Safety in numbers, there were four of them. Caught one, there's still three left. (laughs) They went back there times afterwards, of course, never saw nothing. Armed with a camera this time. Now, the people who were on your land trying to protect your sheep and be on guard, did some of them have firearms? Would some of them have taken a shot if they thought it was safe to do so? There would be no point in being there otherwise. So they were doing two things. They were looking to try and end the problem, but they were also, in a way, guarding, making sure there was no carcasses that night anyway. Yeah, it was a dual purpose. Yeah. But thereafter, I'm trying to think, it don't come easily. I remember one of the things, I think it was the keeper suggested, it got a bird scarer that operates oh, yeah. off of a gas cylinder. It's got a barrel on it about a metre long, so it projects out. You can alter the frequency and you can alter the volume. And we sighted it in what we thought was the most strategic point, i.e. right in the middle where sheep happened to be at the time. We had complaints from, oh, cross-country, what is it, two and a half mile. There's people staying as residents at the Blackcock pub. It's a caravan park as well. Mm-hmm. They couldn't sleep. Because it was going off too regularly. And too loud. Yeah. What about the sheep? Did it bother the sheep? I don't think so, but of course the real downside of that is next morning, within maximum of 100 yards of where it was, a carcass was next morning. It was eaten completely. So whatever this was, it worked out that this noise was false. Incredible, yeah. Did you end up having respect for this animal? At the time, not only was the time of the year you don't get much sleep in any case, I had an abscess under my tooth and consequently couldn't sleep at all. I presume it was stressful as a farmer finding regularly sheep carcasses. It wasn't so much finding the carcass, but the realisation after two or three weeks, you couldn't do nothing about it. Or put it another way around, whatever you did, didn't work. It was outwitting you. Yeah. What about the commotion, the media and all of that fuss and hassle and bother? Was that stressful as well? They were nothing but a bloody nuisance. Can you understand why a lot of people have probably not as intensive situation as you did, but similar situation, but just keep quiet about it? Initially, I didn't make a noise about it. How it come to be newsworthy, I can't really remember. I know the local police sergeant got hold of it, and it was him who had friends in the Royal Marines. And once the media linked Royal Marines with this, that was like lighting the touch paper and stand back. A couple other things has come to mind. Two packs of local hounds at the time, one was foxhounds and the other was beagles, offered to come and flush out woodlands and like this woodland here. It was completely surrounded by guns and they went in there with hounds. We heard the same afternoon that somebody, oh, at least five miles away, at least, had seen something really, really suspicious. So the reality of what they were looking for was not necessarily living on the doorstep. So it was travelling here very deliberately. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But one thing that does come to mind, a guy who lives quite locally here was really interested in what was going on. He made different suggestions. And one was... Get all the sheep in. We had food come in and out that day. It was, I remember it was chaos. If we tried to get it all done one day, which I can't remember if we did manage or not, but we got the majority. Um, all bar three or four in the flock, we all the lambs and douse them in renardine. It stinks to high heaven. This is going back to the dipping point. Yeah, yeah. I think it was originally designed to put down in fields to keep foxes away. Okay. But it stunk to high heaven. And we thought we were doing a wonderful job. Now, in each bunch, we left three or four lambs. But what we did with them, I'm going to ask you to have a guess what we'd done with these four. You didn't leave them as sacrifices, did you? (laughs) They were possibly intended as bait, but it was a bait with a difference. And that is... It had little sachets with the tiniest, tiniest bit of strychnine in. Remember, you only need a grain. Gosh. 
we threaded them through like the equivalent of an elastic band mm-hmm. and put it round the neck of these handful of lambs we did not dose in this rarity with the little sachet at the back of his neck. So they were the targets for the lethal dose? They were the targets. What would you think we found next morning? Uh, one of them gone without the lethal dose taken? No. Two of them gone? All of them gone? No, without... no, no. <laughs> we found a ewe with its neck broken, again not far from a hedge bank, and again half eaten. The dose ones was the lambs. We didn't touch the ewes. The fact that we'd caught all these lambs with human hand, I don't think they would have touched any of them in any case. But we didn't realise that at the time. What we were doing seemed a really novel idea, but we left them like it for a week, probably. At least five nights out of that week, again, we had the same scenario with a ewe each night. But it was at that time we realised this about any fields that was walked around just before dark were safe. Because it would detect human smell, human disturbance. That connection of human involvement really at home when the fact that these ewes weren't touched by a human hand. But all the lambs were, and they were safe. Labour-intensive job. We only got them all in once, because this renardine would hang about for a long time. And these little sachets were still on the lambs, but all to no avail, I'm afraid. There must have been a lot of people on and around your farm with firearms. Is that itself not an issue for the police? They weren't bothered two oots at the time. Anything like that never became an issue until after Hungerford. I do remember Hungerford as a child. There was no need for any shotgun certificates then. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Hungerford was a serial killer, just walked into town and shot. That's when, you know, rules and regulations around firearms, etc., tightened right up. And, of course, it was the Marines. You think it was possibly the Marines. And they split into little small posses and did vigils, didn't they? And you think maybe they did end it all? Well, they put up, like, scaffold towers so as they got off the ground, take their smell away, which obviously was a good idea. They had night vision sights. And on two occasions, I got no reason to disbelieve them, but I think it was two separate places, they'd picked up an animal that size at 500 metres. This was not until the middle of May, situated in a strategic little spot. They picked up sight of this, well, I say this animal. I never had no problems after this particular night. They were adamant it was a big black cat because they were within probably 100 metres. It was on its belly, literally, although they could not see any rabbit. It was stalking something. And it was at that point the firearms instructor took the rifle and he was waiting for it to come up off the ground for a better target. But without any warning, from crouched position, it took off like a rocket. And it was at that split second he had a shot at it. And from that point on, I never had no more problem. I think we can see him on the forthcoming documentary Britain's Big Cat Mystery by Matt Everett. And he's interviewed by Matt Everett, and he actually recounts that situation. He says in the documentary interview that He thinks he did shoot it, but he didn't see the end to the process. And it may have petered out, it may not have done, he wasn't sure. My guess is there would have been a 75% chance it went away wounded. Yeah. And an animal like that would be, who knows, where it would tuck itself away. And finding a carcass like that would be like finding a needle in a haystack, I suspect. If there could have been an outcome where it had been humanely trapped and you could have observed it and seen it at the local zoo or wildlife park, did you care or would you think that would have been a nicer outcome? Well, at that point in time, that sort of question was totally irrelevant. It was like a nightmare. Usually, if you ever suffer from such a thing as a nightmare, but the most that can last for is probably a very, very short period in one night. This lasted for 10 weeks. And it was costing you money. as hassle, fuss, bother, stress and money. Yeah, I suppose it was the stress was the main issue, especially when you had toothache all the time. <laughs> yes, sure. And, of course, other farmers were experiencing it, but not to the extent you were. Oh, no. It was like sporadic cases. Yeah. Have you any view on why it was particularly picking on your land and your sheep? 
other than the fact that probably got it in from me. (laughs) (laughs) No explanation otherwise. Is there anything about the lie of your land? Or did you have different views from other neighbouring... No, I think you're clutching at straws there. If it was anything to do with these two that I used to see travelling up the road, because prior to that, that individual who owned them had vanished and the two animals had vanished. What happened to them? Your guess is as good as mine. Mm. And they were different colours? Yeah, one of each colour. They would have sounded differently. OK, that is food for thought, isn't it? There's a reason for everything, if you can find that reason. Yeah, yeah. And that was the difficulty. We could not find the reason. <laughs> People are still reporting big cats, the black ones and the brown ones, routinely across Britain now, and occasionally we do get farmers and landowners and sheep owners and estates that are having stock losses with the same kind of consumption pattern and assuming that it's cat related in places so it's still going on 37 years later is that a surprise i think the short answer is i've seen enough christmases now that nothing surprises me it's rare to have somebody experiencing it as severely as you did although we are in touch with one farmer a long way away, who's had this ongoing for four years. Losses every week and a half. Mm, That, in some respects, would be almost more difficult to deal with because of the sporadic nature and like a hit-and-run attack, that is, isn't it? Two neighbouring farms are also experiencing it not to the same extent. There seems to be one epicentre, two cats, local police office aware of it, powerless to do anything, really, without the resources. Well, but then it's not necessary resources that would solve a problem like that. It's the right solution. Many solutions, mainly humane, have been tried. It's interesting how many people you got offers of help from. Oh, yeah, there was scores of people. You know, really, really useful, but you come across a percentage that were a waste of time. Yeah, and got in the way, presumably. Come for the joy of it. So when people say... It's romantic to think about there's these big cats out. Do you understand where they're coming from, or do you think, well, you've got to think about the people who are impacted if the cats misbehave? First thing comes to the mind is, what is the definition of romance? I think they got the wrong word by miles there. If that's their definition of romance, then they got a fairly sad life. We're running out of time, and it's getting cold. Final point, is it the most stressful thing you've experienced as a farmer? That is a good question. I can think of one or two things, but totally different to this. Anything that would directly affect the farming side, now nothing would have been like that since. It's primarily because of the length of time it went on for. And as farmers, you like to be resourceful and learn how to manage and control a situation. And that was the problem. You couldn't manage and control that situation, could you? Anything that had ever worked before was useless. And even, you know, so-called professionals coming in, whatever they tried was useless. I can even remember some Indian, had Indian connections. I'm talking about the Wild West now, turning up here. I can vaguely remember this. And their speciality was tracking anything. He was absolutely convinced that he would get to the bottom of this. But needless to say, (laughs) he went the same way as everybody else. (laughs) Yes. It's so interesting to hear about this experimentation that was going on, because it still happens now, spread out across different places. All of that experimentation still goes on, and the animals still outwit us now. (laughs) Well, I suspect that is primarily because of the exceptional hearing, smell and sight of these animals, plus the 90% likelihood that they're living up in a tree and yeah afterwards realized like as an example when these two packs of uh, hounds turned up although we were aware that on one occasion i think i said before someone five six mile away had a very very suspicious encounter with mm. something i suspect all that time we should have been looking up trees none of this you'd be aware of initially at the time Eric, I think that's all really valuable stuff. We have run out of time. Thank you for remembering all of that interesting material. So hope it never happens again. No doubt. I forgot some things. It's inevitable. 
I'm sure our listeners are grateful for hearing from you on Big Cat Conversations. Thank you very much. Let's help you one day get a conclusion to this. For our next episode, we will be hearing all about how a panther sighting eventually turned into a book. That will involve talking with David Anthony Starkey. His encounter many years back was in South Wales and that inspired him to write a new book, a fictional novel featuring black leopards in the wild in Britain. In our discussion with him, we'll hear about the plot and all the ideas behind it and the awareness raising he would like to happen as a result of the book. Meantime, I must stop highlighting the coming episode from Scotland because we're still on pause with that one, but interviews are scheduled. The continued delay with that one is not our fault, honestly. As a clue to part of the coverage on that episode, word of the week will be Sylvestris. I need to do a shout-out to Jack Perks. He is a wildlife cameraman, and he specialises in rivers and in underwater filming. He also does a very engaging nature podcast called, wait for it, The Bearded Tit. Jack was nice enough to invite me on as a guest recently, so you can hear that at The Bearded Tit Podcast, episode 25. That's it for episode 31. Great to have your company, everyone, and we must thank a good friend of the show, Tim Whittard, for working his magic to help this particular episode happen. Thanks again to our guests, Lord Tyler and Eric Lay. Till next time, everyone, take care and bye for now. Bye.